Thanks for finding the What Have Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com. And as you know, these are scary and extraordinary times. In this special episode, I talked to Dr. Randy Marriott, an ER physician and director of Premier Health's EMS Center. Premier Health, of course, includes Miami Valley Hospital. Dr. Marriott answers your questions about COVID-19, also known as coronavirus. He gives us an update about what is going on right now in the ER and how you can help doctors, nurses, and other staff members before the storm hits. Dr. Marriott explains the gag-worthy reasons administering the coronavirus test is a risk to healthcare workers and why this is a test you don't want to take unless you absolutely have to take it. He explains when you should go to the ER and why you should stay away if at all possible. Dr. Marriott breaks down why groups of 10 or more might be one too many. We talk about gloves and masks and if you can give the coronavirus to your dog. The What It Happened Was podcast is a project of Dayton.com, recorded for now at least in my house. Rate and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you find your favorite shows. Now here's my chat with Dr. Randy Marriott. So what I did was I asked people what kind of questions they had for you. And one of the questions was, when should people know to come to the emergency room? When do you come? You come when you have a feeling of unease in your well-being. In other words, you're having significant shortness of breath. You're having significant chest pain. You have concern of your immediate well-being. There is really no treatment we can offer someone with COVID-19 right now. Right now, as we stand today, and that's supposed to change within a week, we don't have the ability to do rapid testing in the emergency department, and we're not sending off tests from people that we treat and release. There's not a great deal that we can accomplish right now. Now, if someone is showing significant shortness of breath, particularly if they have underlying medical conditions, underlying lung or heart disease, and they're showing signs that these underlying conditions are being aggravated by a potential infection, a potential virus, those people sometimes are ending up in the hospital. But unless you think you may need to be hospitalized, there's really not much accomplished by going to the hospital, and there's a significant risk. And that is, if you didn't have COVID to begin with, you might actually become infected by making an, an unnecessary trip to the emergency department. So really, the people who will be in the hospital are going to be the ones in, in the highest danger, the people who need respirators. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah, hopefully not to that point. We would maybe hope to intervene with supportive care, oxygen, uh, different respiratory treatments before they get to that point. We'd like to avoid them being on the ventilator office because that's a, that's a fairly intense modality to employ on someone. It is going to be only the sicker people that are in the hospital, yes. And our threshold for putting someone in the hospital may need to change. In other words, someone last month that may have warranted hospitalization by that standard of care that existed before this crisis, that person may not warrant hospitalization next week. Oh, wow. Uh, and so that this triage process will have to take place. Resource allocation will have to be different if we see the kind of numbers that have been seen in other countries. How are you preparing yourself mentally for that? Well, I don't know that there is it's a good way to do that. You just take it day by day, hour by hour, and you, you make the best decision you can with the information you, and the resources you're given at, at that particular time. That's really all you can do. That's all we ever do. That's how we function in emergency medicine from with any given, given set of circumstances. You have to make uh, 
you have to make decisions given what you have. When I asked on Facebook, a lot of people put questions about the staff and what they can do to help families. Kate Brown asked and Bridget asked. People are wondering, should they be making masks? Should they be donating masks? Should they bring you, bring you snacks and Gatorade and that sort of thing? What can they do for you guys? The best thing they can do is keep themselves healthy, keep their families healthy, and the best way we know to do that right now is social distancing. Just stay away from each other is the bottom line. We don't know yet about homemade personal protective equipment. That's largely untested, but those options are being considered. Every option is on the table for personal protective equipment right now, be it going with uh, industrial-grade masks like the president discussed yesterday versus even having them manufactured through 3D printing, you name it. The suggestions have been made. So everything's on the table. As far as homemade PPEs, that's difficult to, to answer since we don't know what materials are being used and so forth. You're not taking masks from the public is the bottom line right now. No. There are efforts to receive medical grade and possibly in the near future industrial grade personal protective equipment from donors. That's going to be managed by Macomb, which is the Montgomery County Office of Emergency Management. They will do this in conjunction with Gadaha, which is the Greater Dayton Area Hospital Association. They will manage those donations and make distributions to the hospital. Some of these donations are coming from dental and veterinary clinics because they have postponed their elective procedures as well. Another question along those lines is gloves. Some um, folks who I know asked about gloves who are like in the tattoo and in the uh, hair business. Should they be donating mm -hmm. their gloves or any of their equipment to you guys? What should they do with that? Again, I think that is going to depend on their brand and material and grade. I think those options are all on the table. But managing donations is a skill set unto itself. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the folks at the Montgomery County Office of Emergency Management, that's their forte. That's part of what they train to do is manage donation. If you're not careful, you end up with a pile of old sweat socks. <laughs> Nothing is really usable. Uh, <laughs> donation management is a skill set unto itself. How that will play out in, in this area, I can't speak to entirely, although I know that those professionals will be able to have those answers. Another question is from a guy named Jay Hawkins. He wants to know, how can you tell the difference between the flu and coronavirus? That is part of our challenge is that there are few distinguishing features of COVID-19 and other viral illnesses. That is actually our biggest obstacle right now to being able to accurately assess patients, particularly when you don't have a rapid test. We do have a rapid test for flu. It's not entirely reliable and if negative for someone admitted to the hospital, we generally then need to back that up with a more sensitive test. But as far as clinical features, I can give you some generalities and these are only in general terms. People having symptoms above their neck, we would say, primarily, if their symptoms are primarily sore throat, sinus drainage, sinus congestion, ear pain congestion, things that are affecting the upper throat and the sinuses, unlikely to be COVID. Okay. We're speaking of lower respiratory symptoms, cough, chest discomfort, plus minus fever. Those symptoms are more consistent with COVID. If we continue down the body, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, and other gastrointestinal symptoms, much less likely to be COVID. Essentially, what we're talking about is below your head and above your belly is where COVID is causing the most consistent symptoms. Some of this information is changing day by day as we get more information from China and other countries that are a few months ahead of us, in some cases just a few weeks ahead of us. 
So that information is being compiled and disseminated. Some of this will change. This information that I'm giving you today, I guarantee will change in a few weeks or a few months. This is, again, the moving target that we're dealing with. It's a very, very fluid situation. Now, everybody is social distancing, or they should be at this point if they can. What should they be doing to take care of themselves while they're doing that? It may be trite, but the simple things do count here. Uh, they need to rest. They need to hydrate. They need good nutrition. All the things that your mother told you, you need to be doing. If you allow yourself to become fatigued through the lack of care in these other areas, you will be more susceptible to infection, and you will be unable to fight it as well as you ordinary would. Common sense measures. If social distancing doesn't mean that you can't go outside, you can go outside, right? You should go outside, right? You can go outside, right. I would stay six feet away at minimum from other individuals to the extent possible, and I would avoid social gatherings entirely. There is no uh, reason to take a risk with a social gathering. The number 10 or less has been thrown about. If you're in a group of nine and one of them is infected, you might as well be in a group of a thousand. Right. This is, I don't know where that number came from other than simply trying to limit the higher risk groups. Obviously, the more people are present, the more chance of someone being infected. However, if you pick that long group of less than 10, you're going to be just as, as sick as if you were in a group of a thousand. I think the best advice is simply to avoid social gatherings altogether. This is an unprecedented time. These are unprecedented recommendations. But I think if we're going to ride this storm and with the least impact on our community, we're going to have to take these recommendations seriously. I think that whole 10 people thing comes from the fact that it's hard to tell people you can't be around other people because we are like right. such exactly social right. beings. Right. Mentally, how should people right. be taking care of themselves? That's one question Jennifer Brown asked me is basically she doesn't have any kids, she's single. How can she keep herself together without being around other people? Well, fortunately, we live in a time when electronic devices allow us to be social without actually being in proximity. So I would leverage our technology as much as possible. I think that's actually the, the best way to to try to keep yourself from developing you know, what we used to call cabin fever. Right. Um, personally, I've been walking. I could walk through the neighborhood, and I'm not in proximity to anyone else. There is no danger in simply walking through your neighborhood. So we're not saying don't go out. We're saying don't go around people. I've been seeing a lot of people in my neighborhood walk with their pets, and one person did ask about pets, and I don't know if you have any information about this or not. But what about pets? Are you, should you worry about your animals? Should you worry about your animals affecting you? Should you worry about infecting them? I have not heard any concern about the virus being transmitted back and forth between us and pets. So I think we're okay there. Over the years, even before COVID, there are very few diseases that go back and forth, particularly between human and canine. That's a very safe relationship. I don't have any concerns with pets at this time. And another question somebody asked, a guy named Don Shelton, he wants to know, if you think you had it a couple of months ago, but you have random lingering respiratory issues, a cough, should you consider trying to get a test? Several topics uh, there. Uh, I know. <laughs> One is, I would tell Don if he were in a high-risk group a few months ago, then, then maybe there's just a possibility he had it. However, if he didn't travel, if he wasn't around someone known to have the COVID virus, it would be very, very unlikely two months ago that he would have developed coronavirus COVID-19 disease. Very, very unlikely unless he fit the CDC definition of high risk at that particular time. 
So I would take that off the table, uh, assuming he did not meet those criteria. The second part of, of the question is, should I be tested? That is a topic I, I do want to expound on here. If you are not significant distress to the point where you feel you need to go to the hospital and you may be potentially admitted to the hospital, there's little advantage to undergoing testing. Furthermore, our materials to do testing are very limited right now, honestly. Mm -hmm. We're limited by the number of swabs that we have in order to actually obtain a, a specimen. Every time a specimen is obtained, it's obtained from your nasopharynx, meaning that swab is, is inserted deep into your nose, mm -hmm. uh, back actually back into your throat, through your nose. Oh, my God. Um, yes. Uh, so to get a proper what we call nasopharyngeal specimen, it's quite noxious. Many people will cough and have other reactions to that being inserted into their nose. What that does is it puts people around them and the person collecting that specimen at risk if they truly are positive. Every time we test someone, we're using one more swab from a limited supply currently, and we're risking the exposure of the healthcare worker obtaining the specimen. But getting back to what testing would do for Don, it would actually not do much. We don't have a treatment to offer him that he's positive. If he's sick, regardless of the cause, whether it's flu or whether it's COVID or whether it's some other respiratory virus, regardless of why he's sick, he needs to self-isolate. He needs to stay away from other people and not spread the disease. I'm trying to say that testing right now in people who are not in acute distress is not going to change the management of the disease in that person. Knowing just for sake of knowing is not a luxury that we have at this time. Right. And that may change in a few weeks. And I want to make this perfectly clear. We are not testing people in the emergency departments. We are not. Do not come to the emergency department seeking a test. If you are admitted to the hospital, and if you're that sick, obviously you should be in the emergency department. Then while you're in the hospital, we will, will pursue testing. But the turnaround time for testing is still days, not hours, days. Even people that are admitted to the hospital were waiting a number of days to get test results. Hopefully that sheds some light on testing. As Governor DeWine said the other day, Ohioans are fixated on testing and they should not be. As he also said, if you believe you're sick potentially with COVID-19, act as if you are mm -hmm. and self-isolate. That's the best advice. He has good advisors. It wasn't me, but he has other good advisors. <laughs> we can tell people. They'll believe you for sure. <laughs> <laughs> How are things generally going for you? I know this is emergency medicine is your thing, but this must be kind of extreme. Well, it's uh, actually a little bit of a call before the storm. Our ED volumes are actually a little bit down. Our capacity in the hospital is actually pretty good right now. But obviously, the way this virus can exponentially have its effects, we're afraid that a week or two weeks or three weeks, it may be an entirely different story. So right now, it's pretty calm. What do you think it's going to be like in the emergency room? I don't know. I've not experienced anything like what's been described on the West Coast and in other countries. Our closest we would come to that would be maybe H1N1 10, 11 years ago. We were very busy then. We've had some bad flu seasons, but this is going to be several magnitudes above that, I'm thinking. And I probably should go back and mention that our capacity is up, meaning our census is down and our ED census is down. That's exactly what we want right now, and that's by design. We're trying to make it that way. We're trying to manipulate our system so that's exactly what we have right now. So that, that actually is not by chance. We have, by postponing elective surgeries, 
and by curtailing other non-essential services, we are doing this in order to create that capacity for search. Healthcare is, is a business like any other industry, and doing that is the right thing to do, but it comes at a significant cost. Also, in our ED volume being down is by design as well. We're working with public health and with the Greater Dayton Area Hospital Association to get that message out that don't come to the ED unless you have significant or severe symptoms. We cannot do testing. There is no active treatment. Please stay away because you actually will be contaminating other people or you could be infected yourself if you come to the ED or hospital unnecessarily. So those messages, I think, are resonating. And again, with the measures we've taken to postpone all non-essential procedures and services, that's why we have the capacity and the low ED volume as we speak. And we're hoping that that's going to pay dividends in the following weeks. As far as like people who are around other people, like talking postal workers, Tammy Grubber wants to know, is there any way they can protect themselves as they like go outside and come back in and deliver things? I think the six-foot rule applies to them. There's no reason you can't place a package on a porch and, and allow the occupant of the home to come out and get it after, after you've walked away. We should avoid those handoffs that put us within six feet. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely, that should be avoided. may not always be possible, but if you are sick particularly, you should not be engaging in any handoffs of material that puts you within six foot of another person. So we really, really need to practice some personal responsibility in recognizing that we are ill and taking those precautions for the sake of others. Doing so, you may be saving your own family. I mean, it's we're all in this together. If you are ill, you need to act as if you are. I've been fighting my mother over this next question. She's 67 years old almost, and she's, like, thinking she's 22 still. So it took me a minute to convince her to stay, right? It took me a minute to convince her that she is, in fact, 66 years old, and people over 65 have a higher risk. But right. also, right. what is the risk for people who are younger? Lisa wants to know. We're still trying to get a handle on risk. There's been a lot of things proposed that have not been borne out yet by, by by science. You get information. I've gotten questions about blood type, about you know yeah. other uh, comorbidities and so so forth. I, I don't know that any of that is ready for prime time. Honestly, we do know that deaths have occurred more so in the older age groups. So I think that is going to be something that will be borne out. That age is dropping. I think people in their 50s maybe that's an increased risk. It's entirely possible now. You know, building up the whole discussion of you know biological versus physiologic age, and certainly people can be much more healthy at, at certain ages. I mean, I understand your mom's attitude. I'm 55, going on 26, so there's, there's really no. In my mind, I can do everything I did at, at half my age, but I have to recognize, I have a wife to remind me that I may be at higher risk at my mid 50s than someone 10 or 20 years younger. I think there is something to that, and I think we we really need to take that to heart if if we're in those older age groups, or as I say, AARP eligible. um, (laughs) Maybe that's something we really need to to take to heart. We do know that it's less likely, at least we thought, to affect young children, although there have been some reports across the state of preschool children having been COVID positive, but I believe they're showing 
less severe symptoms than the older age group. Unfortunately, this is moving so quickly that I'm not sure the epidemiologists are able to hash out these questions quickly enough to be of practical service to us. What do you think society is going to look like and what do you think medicine is going to look like once everything is done? My hope is that we will be better than Italy, better than China. Maybe we'll be more along the model of South Korea that was not as impacted. I firmly believe that the steps taken by both the federal and state government, particularly Governor DeWine, are going to reduce deaths. I think he's saving lives. I think he's going to, in the end, be heralded for everything that he's done. The problem is some people may not accept that because you know, it's, it's hard to... <laughs> It's hard to accept that a problem was averted. It's hard to sometimes believe that those measures actually did avert the problem, that the problem never occurs. Right. Uh, there will always be those who say, well, we would have been fine anyway had he not done everything that he's done. I don't believe that. I don't think any down-picking epidemiologist is going to believe that either. So I think we're going to be better than other countries. I suspect we're going to be better than other states. Two or three weeks, four weeks from now, however, we could have full hospitals, emergency departments that are busting at the seams, and we could be having to treat patients in non-traditional space, in makeshift space. We may be using tents outside our emergency departments and enclosing other parts of adjacent grounds to, in order to treat people. Those plans are in place. They're already. This is already being laid out. We're trying as best we can to be proactive and anticipate what might be happening weeks down the line. You could be seeing people being cared for at alternate care sites, and again, this is being planned as, as well. How can we leverage empty healthcare space in the community? Then that's being looked at as we as we speak. Will it come to that? I don't think anyone really knows. I'll give it a 50-50 shot. I think I'll break even on that, but I, I will tell you that our best chance of averting that is doing exactly what we've been asked to do so far. I appreciate the chance to be able to say it because you can't say it enough. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for talking with me. All right. No, no likewise. Again, I appreciate the opportunity. Information is definitely power. Thanks again to Dr. Randy Marriott for all the help. You can find the latest news and information about the coronavirus on Dayton Daily News and Dayton.com. The What It Happened Was podcast is a project of Dayton.com. Recorded in my home office with my big old fat cat Tigger at my side because I'm being a good girl. And you should be good boys and girls too and listen to the doc. The show is written, edited, and produced by me, Amelia Robinson. Its artwork is by my good friend Troy Liming of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time... Stay healthy, please. And please, keep at least six feet away from most people. See you alligators later. Bye-bye.